Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church today, those present and those online. It's a going to be a great Sunday, I can tell already, with the, uh, the rain, the liquid sunshine that God has, has provided, that blessing. But it's also going to be uh, a day when we remember the, Pros- the Protestant Reformation, because that will occur just prior to our next Sunday service. <clears throat> But we always take a few seconds prior to our service, beginning our service for spiritual preparation. And spiritual preparation uh, for us is confession of sins, but also it's an opportunity to take a deep breath and relax and try to move beyond the pressures of the day, uh, asking God the Father, to uh, inspire us, we might say, uh, and certainly uh, give us the strength and concentration through God the Holy Spirit to be edified by our service. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus uh, for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this was one of those passages that had a significant impact uh, during the uh, forerunners and those who were participating in what is commonly known as the beginning of the Reformation because what had to be understood was that we are saved by grace through faith. Let's take a few seconds closing our eyes and bowing our heads and then I will open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for those who have gone before, who have had the faith, the devotion, the commitment to what they were finding in the Word of God. And we pray, Father, as we assemble and as we study the Word of God, that we'll have that same understanding that God the Holy Spirit has provided for us an inspired text that tells us how we are to live our lives And we're thankful, Father, for the the extraordinary grace that you have provided for us, your love, the provision of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to redeem us from our sins. And we pray, Father, that we'll not only understand that our salvation is by grace through faith, but we will live our lives that way, not believing that we need to add anything to our, to our salvation. And we pray, Father, that as we worship this morning, that we will honor you and that we will be edified by it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading... 
is from Romans. Romans was one of the books of the Bible that Martin Luther studied. And as he studied, he became more and more convinced that works were not associated with our salvation. Now, one of the things we have to remember is that Martin Luther was not the first one to believe this, or as some might say, discovered this. But when history is written, very often there needs to be a hook upon which we need to hang certain events in history. And uh, Martin Luther was in the middle of this fray, and he just happened to have the personality and the determination to take a stand. And as a matter of fact, that was one of the comments that he made. Here I stand. I can do no other. And he was defending uh, what he believed before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. We're beginning here in Romans chapter 4, because this is one of the passages that uh, Martin Luther uh, read, studied, was teaching to his students, and as he did, he understood more clearly what the Bible teaches about grace. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, another way we can uh, define, uh, translate this would be that he was declared righteous. Notice he was declared righteous. He wasn't, uh, he didn't satisfy God uh, through his personal efforts. It says that he was justified. He was, for if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he has something to boast. In other words, if God has justified him, has declared him righteous because of his works, then he has something to boast. But it goes on, but not before God. He can boast in front of his, uh, we might say, uh, Martin Luther here, he could boast uh, in front of his students for his wonderful life, uh, although uh, Martin Luther uh, did not believe that he lived a, a righteous life. As a matter of fact, uh, he was depressed, even distressed, uh, through most of his life, wondering if, in fact, he uh, had a true relationship with, with God and God would accept him. First, but here we're speaking, of course, of Abraham. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, had faith in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Or we could use it was credited. This is an accounting term. This was accounted to him for righteousness. Notice believing and righteousness together. Verse 4. Now to him who works. In other words, uh, their faith may be involved, but they're also including works. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now this is really an important for us to understand what is debt here the debt is unrighteousness that's the debt and the harder we work to achieve righteousness the greater the debt it pile there's a big pile of it there so now to him to the person who works and he's working for his uh his salvation the, wa- the wages, these works, are not counted as grace, but as debts. But to him, to the person, verse 5, who does not work, and we would say here, faith alone, but believes on him, the Father, who justifies, who declares him to be righteous, the ungodly, his faith is accounted, is credited for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And the imputation there, again, is our word for credits. Verse 7, and this is David, Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. In other words, his unrighteousness are forgiven and those and whose sins are covered or are pardoned. Verse 8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. In other words, he does not hold guilty. God does not hold them guilty, but imputes instead Righteousness imputes righteousness to them. And the imputation of righteousness comes from God. It's not by works. So this imputation is not, has not been a, a part of works. As a matter of fact, the imputation tells us, means that it is simply something that God provides for us, gives to us. So this is one of the passages that um, stirred um, many of the reformers, not just Martin Luther, but uh, many others. Now, I'm going to read just a a short paragraph. Well, it's not a short paragraph, but it's 
a short article here that introduces us a little bit to uh, the Reformation. And it's called the Reformation, uh, I think, mostly because there were uh, many changes that were going, uh, that were ongoing at that time. We understand this truly for us as the Protestant Reformation. There was also a a Catholic Reformation, but it came later. Not much later, uh, but later. Martin Luther, whose name is forever associated with the Protestant Reformation, did not start the Reformation, but when he posted his 90 Five, and we always call them the 95 theses, but for me, uh, it's his 95 proposals. Um, this is what he believed. <clears throat> uh, when he post, posted these on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, on the eve of All Saints Day, which is 1 November, That date was October 31, 1517, and it's usually given as the date of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, but it really wasn't the start. It was just one of the sort of the pinnacles of that Reformation. The words thesis thesis, was a statement or a proposition designed to encourage academic debate among the students and professors at the University of Wittenberg, where Luther was a professor. And one of the ways that they uh, taught was to write down questions, many questions, and then post them. And the students were to come and read the proposals, the questions, and then they would come to class prepared to address or discuss these propositions. The church door was was a place where announcements were posted, so Luther was not rebelling against the authority of the Catholic Church at that time. He was trying to stir the debate on issues that he thought needed the attention of the religious leaders of the church. He had posted uh, other uh, propositions. As a matter of fact, he had posted one that had 97 questions. Now, that's quite a few. Uh, if I was a student and had to answer 95 questions before class, uh, that would probably be uh, exceedingly trying. Uh, but add a few more, 97. He posted one time prior to that. So he had posted uh, 97 of these propositions or questions before, and not much notice had been taken outside the university. However, the second batch, second uh, list of uh, propositions, questioned the system of raising money. And that was going just a bit too far for the likes of several, we might say, uh, pri- uh Several, uh, oh, devoted or spiritual-minded uh, religious and secular leaders. Luther 
rejected the system of indulgences that had been authorized by the Catholic Church as a system of raising money. It seems no matter where you go or what you do, uh, money has a tendency to corrupt, and it had completely corrupted the universal church at that time, the universal church being the Catholic church, Catholic meaning universal. Um, uh, After this, we'll address it as the Roman Catholic church. Um, So the Catholic church, the universal church uh, at the time needed to raise money. Uh, This was known as indulgences. Uh, Now, Even the word itself tells us that there's something amiss. An indulgence was a document that one could buy for a sum of money that would free either the individual or someone who had already died and was now languishing in purgatory from the penalty of their sins. Uh, This, I encourage you to read uh, from church history um, about... uh, the beginning of the Reformation. It's There's a lot of information, but to just uh, study the indulgences that uh, Leo X had um, uh, authorized, and therefore there were many who probably, like uh, Luther early in his life, um, believed that They were going not to hell, not to the lake of fire, but they were going to a place where they would await uh, their punishment so that they could finally go to heaven. And, of course, uh, if you could buy your way out of purgatory, well, who wants to spend that kind of time in purgatory? And so you come up with money, and if you had enough money or you pleased the collector, then you could get a document and you could show that document. I don't know to whom, but you had a document that said uh, you won't go to purgatory. So what does that mean? Well, I don't know if that means forever or for the sins to that point, but I'm getting off the subject here. So for a sum of money, that would free either the individual or someone who had already died and was now languishing in purgatory from the penalty of their sins. Uh, You see, they needed money to build churches, castles, and retirement accounts for their own uses. As an aside here, October 31 should not be known as Halloween, but Reformation Day, and that's how I've always approached this. It's Reformation Day, and it should be celebrated as such, studying and remembering those who challenged the traditions of the Catholic Church, and those traditions, for the most part, were um, uh, were unrighteous. Let's just put it that way. There are several theories behind the name Halloween, but the one I like is that simply it is simply a play on words from Hallowed Eve. And I think that's probably as close as we're going to arrive. Uh, 
the hallowed eve, referencing uh, November the 1st as the Catholic holiday of All Saints Day. So November the 1st was designated as All Saints Day, and the night before was Allowed Eve. Allowed Eve. And I think we get the custom of running around on Halloween as ghosts, goblins, and witches, uh, because all the devils were thought to be out partying, uh, partying the night before, All Saints, uh, prior to All Saints Day, because they uh, couldn't be doing it on that day, because they couldn't be out on such a sacred day as November the 1st, All Saints Day. Now, what I'd like to do is take a, a quick look. I always have a lot more than I'd uh, like to say here, but let's take a quick look at some of the historical uh, evidence of what we have here. Reformation Day, 13 October 1517, and that is the day that uh, Martin Luther posted his propositions, the 95 of them. What's interesting, as I said, he had previously posted um, many other propositions, but they were, other than what he published, they hadn't caused a great stir. But what happened with the 95 proposition propositions is that it was cha- it was more of a direct challenge of uh, the Pope's authorization for indulgences. And not only that, but about 50 years prior to that, uh, Gutenberg had been able to come up with a way of printing um, so that what he what um, uh, Martin Luther had created could be printed and disseminated and as this became uh, more and more uh, well known his propositions it stirred more and more uh, of a problem but here we have not only Luther but Zwingli uh, Calvin, Wycliffe was one of the forerunners, but I like to include him because he had a significant impact in England. Uh, and uh, then, of course, Thomas Cramner was also uh, from England. The background, and I'm going to try to go through this uh, rather quickly. Uh, so the background of the Protestant Reformation. Reformation. First of all, uh, the background has a setting. There's turmoil here. And first of all, we see the unwillingness of the medieval Roman Catholic Church to accept re- uh, reform suggested by uh, really sincere reformers. They were not rebelling against the church, but they just knew that there had to be, uh, there had to be reforms. And there were many who uh, had this uh, belief and this approach. Secondly, the emergence of nation states, which opposed the papal claim of universal power. So we're seeing that as the, uh, uh, the nation states moving out from underneath 
the Holy Roman Empire and uh, other uh, religious powers, these nation states resented the power that the uh, that the Pope possessed. And thirdly, the rise of the middle class, uh, which disliked the drain of wealth to Rome. Uh, no, no longer did we have uh, the uh, feudalism and serfs. Uh, there was a middle class that began to uh, decide for themselves. And they, as they uh, also read the Bible, they came to s- some different conclusions than the Roman church did. The forerunners of the the Protestant Reformation, and I'll just list these here. These are the ones that um, are very often found in uh, history. John Wycliffe in England from 1328 to 1384. Uh, And his beliefs that I've listed right below this, A, B, C, and D, were accepted and supported by uh, John Huss, or Jan Hus, of Bohemia, and Savarola uh, in Florence. And so these are just three representatives, but there were, there were thousands of others who uh, came up with these same uh, positions. First of all, Christ was the head of the church. Not the Pope. The vicar of the church is Christ, not the Pope. Secondly, the Bible was the authority for the believer. Again, not the church. The Bible was. C, the church should model itself after the New Testament church, not uh, after the Roman church. And then finally, D here, the Bible was available in language, should be available in the language of the people. And they call that in the vernacular. The Roman church uh, had retained uh, Latin and they printed their Bibles in Latin. But of course, the uh, populace as a whole did not speak Latin. And so only the priests would have the opportunity to read the Bible, which they didn't do. But um, these were uh, three of the forerunners. Changes of the Protestant Reformation. The changes were dramatic, and you can probably not even begin to understand how this shook the world. First of all, the geographic changes. Uh, people traveling from fiefdoms, towns, cities, countries, and continents. There was, a, I wouldn't say an upheaval, but it was at a time when there were more travel than previously had existed. And as they traveled, they heard uh, the presentation from the forerunners and from uh, those who we understand as the reformers, like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. So uh, these geographical changes uh, assisted in the Reformation. Uh, Political changes. 
the concept of universal state gave way to territorial or nation states. And as these uh, uh, nation states grew, they wanted to exercise their own authority, their own power, not be subservient to the Pope and to the uh, the Holy Roman Empire uh, Emperor. Uh, they wanted to make their own decisions, and uh, when Luther began to cause, uh, or when he was, it became known who Luther was, and he began to stir, we might say, uh, the political waters. There were nobles who who supported him and protected him, and that would never have happened uh, had uh, the Pope still retained the authority that he normally had. The economic changes. Uh, The middle class merchants replaced the medieval feudal noble in society. And so uh, there came uh, a, uh, a society that was now uh, making their own way, their own fortunes. And so they were not under the, the fist of uh, the, uh, the, in the feudal system. So they had um, various developments that were causing uh, the Protestant Reformation to continue. There were social changes, and I've just mentioned some of them. We had a new urban middle class replacing the feudal class. We had free farmers. Farmers, they had their own land, uh, larger land owners uh, that would need to hire uh, help. And then, of course, the merchants. And as they rose, they were no longer restricted to being serfs, but they could rise in uh, uh, in, their, in various classes so that the classes were not so rigid. Five, intellectual change, study of the Bible, growth of universities, teaching of languages. Some of this was a result of the uh, Muslim uh, Islam in, uh, inva- uh, invasions of uh, Greece, uh, Turkey, uh, northern Africa. Uh, so this caused a lot of the uh, uh, Jerusalem, Alexandria, forced a lot of intellectuals to move, to come to various areas that where they had never been prior to that. And uh, the teaching of languages uh, and uh, the population now had an opportunity to read the Bible themselves. And then fine, finally we have religious changes. The establishment of national or free Protestant churches. So we have the establishment of national or free Protestant churches. Authority of the Roman Catholic Church was replaced by the authority of the Bible, which individuals began to read and ask questions. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, areas of 
uh, of question was the sacraments that was required by the Roman Catholic Church. There were many who, as they read their Bible, we can't find these sacraments here in the Holy Bible. Why would we uh, uh, believe that uh, the sacraments were our, was our path, way of salvation? They aren't, or at least not according to the Word of God. The leaders of the Protestant, Protestant Reformation, and I've already listed some of them, uh, the German Reformation was Martin Luther. And I think I just failed to put his uh, dates there. But it was 15, uh, 15, uh, 17, which was the date that we now refer to uh, as the beginning of the Reformation. Secondly, the Swiss Reformation, and this is one of those remarkable bits of information that we very often uh, lose. But because France was a devoted Roman Catholic country, most of those who uh, heard Luther and other reformers, they were pushed out of uh, France and others were pushed out of uh, Italy, others pushed out of Spain, and they ended up in Switzerland. So the Swiss uh, Reformation, there were three types. There was a German-speaking, Zurich, and here we have Holdrich Zwingli, 1484 through 1531. Zurich is on the eastern side of Switzerland. Geneva, the French-speaking part of Switzerland, was John Calvin's area, 1509 through 1564 was his lifetime. And then we have the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptist was an outgrowth of the uh, 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 the Swiss Reformation. Uh, Swiss and North Central Europe is the area where the Anabaptists flourished. Menno Simons, uh, 1496 to 1561, is given more or less the position of the leader of the Anabaptists, but um, that's a, a rather, I wouldn't necessarily say a weak position, but if you have to have a name, this is probably the best one to use because it was closer to what um, we would uh, assign to the Word of God. And then finally, the Anglo the Anglican Reformation in England, Thomas Cramner, uh, 1498 through 1556. Uh, Thomas Cramner was a martyr um, in uh, England. All right. Well, what I think is important here, uh, I just went over that uh, very quickly, is that uh, this is the historical background for the... Um, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and it's important, I think, to remember 
um, this in history because the Protestant Reformation in Europe produced a wave of biblical uh, Christianity. And this wave of biblical Christianity flowed to America, particularly uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, Colonists went to Jamestown in 1607, pilgrims to, uh, to Plymouth in 1620, and then others followed. And the colonies um, developed, and uh, for the most part, other than in maybe in Maryland, we had um, Christian, uh, we had um, Christianity, biblical uh, Christianity. So that in this way, Christianity spread to America, and it not only spread to uh, those who came to America and then spread. But it spread, honestly, to the American Indians and later to the Mexican Indians uh, who previously were pagan. And so this was the beginning of uh, a tremendous blessing for uh, not only those in uh, Europe, uh, but other parts of the world, America certainly being one of them, uh, and it also traveled to other other continents as well. Now, the Roman Catholic Church um, more or less had a handle on South America, Central America and South America, but uh, North America was, uh, was blessed by uh, the Reformation. All right. Now, we have some time here that is important to us. Oh. What I wanted to do, one more, reaffirming the foundations of faith. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. This was one of the, uh, we we might say, uh, mottos that could be used because Scripture had literally been set aside. And it was church traditions that were important. Um, And so... Uh, the foundations of the faith were reaffirmed as we come out of the first century. What happened? Over the years, the church traditions replaced the Word of God. And so we were re- returning to sola scriptura. Secondly, sola fide, by faith alone, not by works, but by faith. And then... Finally, and there were several others, but sola uh, gracia, by grace alone. And these are important uh, mottos, sayings, or positions that, uh, were, uh, that were developed out of the Reformation. We have just enough time to return to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians three, verses sixteen through eighteen, and uh, over the past month, we have finished the final section of Second Thessalonians, Second uh, Thessalonians three, and we are now studying Paul's salutation as he completes this passage. 
uh, this letter, and many people uh, just sort of drop these last three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18, but they are retained by God the Holy Spirit and inspired, and there is information there that I think is important to us. We've studied verse 16, and this morning we'll press on into verse 17. So, 2 Thessalonians 3.16, and this is Paul's third prayer. He concludes his letter, uh, the word epistle we'll see in a moment, uh, really is a transliteration. But verse 16 now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. And we study the word peace so that we understand uh, that it's the harmony that's there, the tranquility. Uh, and it says, the Lord be with you all. The Lord of peace is who we have here. And Paul is saying to the believers in Thessalonica that, um, it is something that is uh, occurring, but he's telling them and he's praying that the peace, the harmony, the tranquility of our Lord be with you. Then verse 17, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Verse 18 is a passage that we'll tackle next week because the word grace is important to us and the many areas of grace that God has provided. But let's jump into 2 Thessalonians 3.17, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. So I write... First of all, Paul dictated many of, his, many of his epistles to a secretary. And we'll go to another passage, Romans 16.22, that is very similar to this. So, Paul dictated many of his epistles, his letters, we can say, to a secretary. The secretary is also called an uh, amanuensis, a Latin word, it's a noun, and it means uh, a literary or artistic assistant, a scribe, or a secretary. And in particular, one who takes dictation or copies manuscripts. So here we have uh, a secretary. Not in this verse, but we know up to this point that he's had a secretary. He's had a scribe helping him. Secondly, Paul suspected that the, the well, uh, I wanted to go to Romans 16.22, and I'm getting in a hurry. Let's hold our, our finger here in 2 Thessalonians 3. Let's go back to Romans 16. This is something that many theologians uh, find interesting, and that is that Paul, instead of writing his own letters, had someone else write for him. Romans 16.22 says, I, and this is 
Tertullus, Tertius, also uh, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. So this is inserted uh, at the end of Romans, uh, the epistle of Romans, the letter of Romans, by the, the scribe who actually wrote this as Paul dictated it. All right. Back to uh, our second point, back to Second Thessalonians 3. Paul suspected, Paul suspected that the Thessalonian church had received fraudulent letters. And we see this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 says, well, I need to begin in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... I'll slow down just a second here. So Paul suspected that the Thessalonian church received a pro- had received a fraudulent letter or maybe even more. And we read this in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, brethren, believers, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if it is from us. So there, they had apparently received other um, letters with information that uh, were fraudulent. Paul's ministry was attacked by many false teachers and prophets. They would write letters, sometimes using Paul's name, but just as often representing themselves as having similar authority as the Apostle Paul or maybe another apostle. These false teachers hope to confuse and to misdirect the recipients, such as the Thessalonian believers. Third, Paul wanted his letters to be personalized. And so he personalized his letters by concluding them with his own hand. And we'll see this in Colossians 4.18. Now, you might say, and the question I think is legitimate, well, then why didn't Paul just write them himself? I think there is a reason, and we'll address that in a moment. So Paul personalized his letters by concluding them with his own hand. Colossians 4, just a few pages, just a book or two. Colossians 4, 18. This salutation by my own hand. So this is Paul. Again, someone has written the the entire epistle, but Paul, enters, uh, in, at the end, uh, interjects his signature, we could say. Paul had a close relationship with the believers in these assemblies. Why? Because he was the one that planted these churches. By adding a comment with his own printing, 
And remember, uh, they didn't have script. They would print. And so it was printed letters. So by adding a comment with his own printing, Paul illustrates his affection for his spiritual families. Four, Paul's handwriting, his printing at the end of the letter, was his official signature for him. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 16.21. So Paul's printing, his handwriting, at the end of the letter, authenticated the letter. Paul's, If Paul, in fact, dictated his letters, then it would be reasonably easy for a fraud to print these letters in a similar manner. And you might wonder if it was possible to seal, possibly uh, uh, seal the scroll with wax, and then that would prevent this problem. But Paul knew that most of his letters would be a circular. In other words, it was not only going to be read by the Thessalonians, but it would be written, uh, be uh, read by other churches that were beginning, and someday we would read it as well. So um, once they were opened, the scrolls, it may not easily be uh, authentically resealed. Even if resealed, slipping another letter into a church could occur. Five. Five, also there's reason to believe that Paul had poor eyesight. Galatians 6, 11. So the speculation is that Paul had poor eyesight. Galatians 6, 11. And therefore, he was unable to write a letter. And I think this is one of those remarkable uh, facts about the Apostle Paul. How did he arrive at his poor eyesight? Was he born with poor eyesight? I don't know. But I believe that he probably incurred many injuries as he moved from location to location. Galatians 6.11. Verse 11 says, See with what large letters. Galatians 6.11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Why such large letters? Because he couldn't see the smaller letters. In Galatians, turn back to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 13. You know, and he's speaking to the Galatians. The Galatians was the first area. This was, um, we believe Galatians was probably one of the early letters Uh, James probably wrote prior to that. But for the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Galatians, and these are the churches that were in uh, what today we call uh, modern Turkey. 
He says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't tell us much, but it tells us that Paul has uh, infirmities. And we know uh, from uh, reading, we studied the, the book of Acts, we know that he was stoned to death uh, in one location. And in other places, he was beaten. And matter of fact, we could go to a passage in Second Corinthians that tells us uh, of all of the abuse, the persecution that he received. So, Paul probably could not have written a letter. Uh, Paul's reference to large letters uh, in uh, in Galatians 4 here implies that Paul had problems with his eyesight, or even he may have been partially blind. And again, I think that's from the persecutions that he received. If so, then Paul would have difficulty writing, particularly in the size of letters, we would say font. In the font, normally used to, to economize the scrolls. They didn't have uh, paper as we uh, have today. And those scrolls were very valuable. And there were uh, uh, few in numbers, as a matter of fact. And sometimes they would scrape the lettering off of a scroll and write over it. Sometimes they would write across the letters. I mean, it's just amazing how they would try to uh, economize. Therefore, Paul commonly ended his letters with a personal greeting. And we see this in 2 Thessalonians 3.17. And Paul's handwriting was undoubtedly distinguishable from his secretary. Now, just in closing here, I think the application here is that Paul had a very difficult life. He was persecuted, stoned, beaten, imprisoned, endured uh, many uh, afflictions and adversity. But Paul was not a quitter. I mean, how many of us, after being stoned, would jump up, go back into the same town, and continue the ministry. We would probably say, Lord, that's it. This is a wonderful sign, Lord. We need to, I need to stop this ministry. And that's how many Christians approach adversity. Oh, this has got to be a sign from the Lord. I need to stop whatever I'm doing here and take it easy. Retire. I need to retire. Well, that wasn't Paul's approach. It didn't make any difference how bad the conditions were. didn't make any difference how abused he was. He had a mission. And as we read in the book of Acts, he absolutely loved his Jewish brethren. They hated him and they abused him. They rejected him. (laughs) And that's why the Lord said, You're not going to the Jewish community. 
you're going to the Gentiles. And he still encountered many Jewish uh, uh, individuals out there. Many of them believed. And they were part of the churches, uh, the the, uh, uh, Gentile churches. But the Apostle Paul was not a quitter. He not only believed what he preached, but he lived it. Yes, there were times when he was discouraged, but his discouragement did not collapse his spiritual life. And they certainly did not retard his gospel ministry. We must have the same approach, the same commitment in the spiritual life. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15:58 1 Corinthians 15:58 The apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians Therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord uh, we must be persistent continue to Romans 8 Romans 8, 31. One of these passages that is incredibly important to us. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, to the suffering and the uh, persecution that we very often encounter. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he, the father, not with him, the son, also freely give us or graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's choice ones? It is God, the father, who justifies, declares righteous. Who is he who condemns? Well, no one is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, God the Father, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Verse 37 Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One last quote here from Carrie Timboom. She says, "If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look, if you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest." Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for. Uh, the Apostle Paul. We're thankful for his persistence. And we're thankful for him as an example. And you've provided him not only as the Apostle who 
gave us so so much in uh, with regard to our spiritual lives. And we know, Father, there's going to be adversity, not necessarily because we're being persecuted, but because we live in a fallen world and a fallen body. And therefore, we are going to encounter difficulties, uh, adversities. But even in spite of those, we trust you. We lean on you. And Father, we are thankful for the provisions that you always have for us. And Father, we remember one more thing, and that is your love for us that sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And uh, his death on the cross provides the way, the path, for us to have eternal life. And we pray, Father, that if there's anyone who has not made that decision, who is listening to this uh, this message, we ask, Father, that they would certainly ponder their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, their faith, so that they may also have eternal life and someday see the Apostle Paul in heaven where we will thank him for his ministry. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.